What's up? Welcome back. I'm Adam Stachowiak, and you are listening to Founders Talk. On this show, I share one-on-one conversations I have with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, lessons learned, and what it takes to build and run their business. Today on the show, I'm joined by Aslam Aslam, the founder of Micro, a new cloud platform entirely focused on the developer experience of consuming and publishing public APIs. Aslam's journey spans many years of open source on Micro, and his sole focus right now is evolving that work into a commercially viable business. This episode is jam-packed with stories of great timing, grit, resilience, success and failure, and of course, lessons learned. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Render, the zero DevOps cloud that empowers you to ship faster than your competitors. Here's Anurag Goel, CEO of Render, sharing why developers choose Render over Heroku and how they're innovating much faster. A lot of Render customers come to us from Heroku and they tell us Render is what Heroku could have been. I think it's because we offer a more streamlined approach to hosting modern cloud applications at a significantly better price point. Applications on Render heal themselves and scale automatically, giving developers the features and flexibility of something like Kubernetes, but without any of the complexity. We're always working to bring the latest industry advances to our platform. So your applications can leverage the state of the art in the cloud without you having to do or learn anything. All right, learn more about how Render compares to Heroku at render.com slash compare or email changelog at render.com for a personal intro and to ask questions about the Render platform. Again, that's render.com slash compare or email changelog at render.com. Let's go way back. Let's go as far back as it takes to give a framework reference for you in tech, getting excited about it, building systems, like where, what is that beginning for you? Yeah, sure. And this is important because uh, I think it's sort of a common thread through everything, but like I grew up in Edinburgh, Scotland, and I studied uh, computer networks and distributed systems at university. So I learned all about internet architecture there. So there was no, it wasn't comp sci, it wasn't theoretical. It was very much grounded in the realities of what had already been built this was back in 2002. And that set a foundation for what I wanted to do, which I thought was to go into networking. Finished that, moved to London, went to work for a startup. Four years later, that startup got acquired by Google. So I went from one interview, one 20-minute interview at this job to working at one of the best world-class technology companies in the world, and, you know, I was in my mid-20s and it was pretty phenomenal to see from the inside what they had built. It was like seeing a decade into the future, quite honestly. Like when you're there, you're literally seeing a decade into the future. Spent a couple of years there, learned as much as I could. But, you know, it turns out Google had really built everything. And being someone in your 20s, you know, you're looking at all this stuff. You're not really getting to contribute to that in a meaningful way, especially coming from a startup. At the startup... You're building everything every day from scratch. You go to Google, they've already built it all. You're, you're kind of working at the edges. There's this you know, joke, how many people are working on Google settings, Google Gmail settings? It's like a dozen you know, in a team who literally just work on Gmail settings. 
And it's true. Uh, and so, you know, I left there, took some time off and joined a ride hailing company here in London called Halo. Halo was at the time they had raised $100 million from investors like USV and Excel, and they were competing against uh, Uber. So this in 2013, both companies had raised the same amount of money, which is a lifetime ago. And that's where I got to build some of those things that I'd seen at Google as a real world platform and experience how to build systems at scale. And uh, it was a phenomenal experience. But in that, I saw something that I thought could be, you know, a product and a company. And, and so I left and started to work on that. So six years ago, I started this open source thing called Micro, and I've never looked back since. You didn't say crystal ball, but you said kind of see into the future. If I could see 10 years into the future, I'd call that a crystal ball, right? I would tell you that's probably as good as it gets. If you're at a company like Google, you're looking 10 years into the future. And the thing that you have to remember is that Google in 2011 was open sourcing nothing. Yeah. You know, Google in 2011 was a secretive company. And so when you were there, you saw the future and you're like, everything that's here is going to exist as a product or in the open source, you know, at some point, which was amazing. So they built this platform called Borg. That's Kubernetes. They built this RPC networking kind of framework called Stubby. That's now called gRPC as an open source project. And there are just countless others that happened, right? But that's what it was. So it was like this, you know, and once you saw it, it turns out like that technology is actually quite boring. Like scaling the patterns for scale that they had identified meant that it was very boring. Like as long as you knew the handful of patterns required, it wasn't very difficult to scale anything. You know, you just needed to have the right people, the right amount of money, you know, all that kind of stuff, and you could do it. So to someone who's in their 20s, you know, once you see that and you figure out, you're like, man, what am I? Either you're there for the free food or you're like, I got to get out of here. I got to go do something because I can't sit and stare at my computer and do nothing all day. Was that the choice you made? Was it to stick around for the free food or, you know, do something different? Was that the choice you were essentially giving yourself? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was uh, about 18 months into it and I sort of just realized like, yeah, this is not for me. I, It was very hard because all the people I had worked with at the company that got acquired, they were all really happy. You know, that was a great experience for them. They, It was like the final company that they were going to work at. They would retire at this company. And I was sitting there kind of like, man, I'm miserable. This is not what I expected it to be. I was expecting something more. I actually see this in a lot of people and a lot of companies where there's, you know, three phases to it, right? The first six months is a novelty. The second six months is like where you really hit your stride and you get something done. And the last six months is this sort of disillusionment, right? Where you're just kind of like, either you're truly unhappy or, you know, you kind of make it through. But I think a lot of people don't make it past 18 months, you know, especially those that come in through acquisition. But like, at that point, you either realize, hey, I want to be here for a long time or I don't want to be here you know, at all and I got to go. And that, you know, that was the choice I was faced with. Well, why do you think, let's examine this. Why do you think that was your perspective then? Like, what is it, you know, about your personality, your characteristics, your history? You know, you're a product of your environment, you know, your experiences in life. What do you think happened to you? What was your upbringing to make you be dissatisfied with Google? I think it's 
One, I would say like we're all unique, but at the same time, we're not unique. We're all human and we all have shared experiences and you know emotions and requirements, behaviors and things that help us. So for me and for a lot of people, it's like, you know, you want to build something, create something, you want to accomplish something. And usually on a daily basis, you want to feel like, you know, you accomplish something. You want to be doing something meaningful. You want to have felt like, actually, yeah, at the end of the day, that day was successful. I did something, you know, I can see the outcome of that. And I didn't feel that. You know, the first 12 months is this process of your company is acquired and you're integrating and you're building a product for them. And we had a lot of leeway. So we got to build, you know, things and I got to continue to build at my rapid pace, even though we were in this kind of political, you know, big bureaucratic company that is Google at the time was still 2011, very large. But, you know, there's so many different teams you have to go through to get anything shipped. Uh, the first version of the thing that we tried to ship got rejected. And so even then, we got to build things pretty quickly. But then after that, you're in the system where, you know, you're accomplishing nothing. You know, the things that I did in half a day were now taking three to four weeks. I had to write a four-page design document for her. And it was kind of like, well, what what am I doing? Why am I doing this? I'm accomplishing nothing. This is not what I came here for. I want to build things. I'm someone who likes to build very quick and ship and all that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of people like that, even if they're not developers in anything that you do in your life, you know, you want to see the results, right? And it's not about instant gratification, but it's a case of like on a day-to-day basis, like, you know, did I do something with that day or was it wasted? And I felt like I was truly wasting my time. Here on Changelaw, we have another podcast called Brain Science, and I actually co-host that podcast with a doctor in clinical psychology and Marielle is the co-host. She says for satisfaction, essentially to be satisfied with something, you have to have an emotional payout. Yeah. Right. So you said not instant gratification. There does have to be some emotional payout from an activity, from a habit, from a loop, from a whatever. And for you, you weren't getting emotionally paid out in the way that you wanted because you felt like there's a lot of minutia in the process and you weren't getting to where you needed to get to quick enough, fast enough, or any enough. Yeah, I mean, specifically, you know, like one of the things that I was working on, I could have done in two hours. And it's just a thing that was taking four weeks. And I was just kind of thinking like, why is it, you know, why am I taking this long to do this kind of thing? And it, and that when you're just not, you know, as you say, it's like, you know, that thing that, gives you that emotional payoff, you know, if that's not coming for weeks and every day is just a case of like, yeah, you know, just getting nothing like, you know, some, some people say like, I would love to have a job where I sit around and do nothing. And you know, the reality is that like maybe for a few days, that'd be the worst. Yeah, I know. But like for a few days, you're quite happy because like, oh man, I feel so relaxed. But then after a while, you're like, man, I'm doing nothing. Like I'm just, what am I doing with my life? You know, what am I doing? And that's where it becomes an existential thing. You know, you start to just, you know, like ponder on the meaning of life. And that's where I say um, a man left with his thoughts is a dangerous thing because, you know, there's nothing to do but pontificate on on the meaning of life. And so I would rather go build things. And so I left and I start to build things again. You know, the the one easy test there might be is uh, is get a win. You know, sometimes if you're not happy with status quo or where you're currently at or you're 
you're just having a bad day. What's the easiest way to a win? That's what I ask myself. That's when, you know, when Jared and I, we sit down, Jared's my business partner here at Change Law Media. And, you know, if, if he's in a rut or I'm in a rut, let's get a win. What can be a win? You got to find a win. So your win might've been, let me go ahead and leave and do something different, which was the next startup you worked at also acquired, right? Was it, was Halo acquired? What was the story of Halo? So Halo was this taxi. Great name, by the way, for a, a ride sharing service. I mean, phenomenal name. To the people who branded that, you know, that was pretty phenomenal. I think it was actually a branding agency that did that. But Halo was a taxi app founded in London in 2010 by um, a gentleman named Jay Bregman, who um, had come from New York, previously founded a company in London as well that was acquired by Royal Mail. It was called eCourier. So he had this idea around, uh, you know, this taxi app. Uber was already around. And he wanted to focus on the regulated kind of market, right? And kind of say, hey, there's all this, already this taxi supply. If we bring them online, then, you know, we service all these consumers. And that was super interesting. And it scaled phenomenally quickly, you know, to the point of raising venture funding very, very fast. And they hit the breaking point in terms of organizational and technical scale. And that's why they required like this complete replatforming. And that's where I learned sort of all these insights about the technology. But they eventually, you know, it turned out that business model worked against them as they tried to expand beyond these uh, markets that were not as highly regulated or suffered from problems, right? So one example would be, you know, San Francisco is probably a pretty bad place to try to operate uh, in a taxi market because, you know, the taxis aren't that great there, right? Uh, New York has this entire medallion system and, you know, you can already find a cab everywhere. It's a good thing, but like beyond some of these markets, it was quite difficult. And uh, Uber had really understood like, hey, this isn't about regulated taxis. This is about getting people a ride, which means we have to move into different vehicle types, which means we have to move into Uber X, lower the prices, you know, do ride sharing, all this kind of stuff. And we were kind of stuck in that model. So, you know, the business was going sideways. Eventually they brought in different CEO the business became profitable by removing all those cities that were not doing well and got sold to Daimler, the company that owns Mercedes. And it merged with a, another taxi company in Europe called My Taxi. And now it's, you know, roaming around other, under the name called Free Now. But this is where you saw essentially where you're working at now in terms of like technology. This is where you kind of learned microservices, scaling, scaling systems, Share some insights there. What, what was you mentioned? I think it was in a separate call. I think it was uh, Open Source Core Summit, I believe is what it's called. You'd mentioned that there's uh, it was built on PHP and unscalable stuff. It helped us understand that part of it. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the key thing is like Halo is like any other startup, right? You MVP your way to something that works as a product and a business. So they had a couple engineers there, the founding engineers who built you know, Java backend, PHP, API, and then some some sort of mobile app on top of that. And they scaled that as far as they could go in terms of both the code base and the infrastructure. And at a certain point, you know, they're just realizing like, hey, if we want to expand to 100 cities, you know, we're either going to pay the cost of trying to copy and clone all of this code and infrastructure, or we need to go do something about it and replatform. So, that's when they start to have this idea around that and they presented that to the board and to build something. And that's when I came in uh, a little bit after they had kind of shipped an MVP version of that to help scale that platform. 
And what I really saw in that, the key thing there was the person who had really envisioned this platform, his name's uh, Dave Gardner. He was the chief architect. He's now like a engineering manager at Apple on the iCloud team. He he got headhunted by them. The key thing that he saw was, you know, Netflix was blogging about their kind of microservices platform in AWS at the time, right? So they had evangelized microservices as this architecture pattern for scaling, and so we had modeled on that. And the idea was that your technical architecture models your organizational you know, structure where you want your organization to move fast. You have all of these independent teams that want to go out there and build software independently, ship quickly, but it's all presented as a unified API to your mobile app, to your web front end, whatever it is. But so the technical architecture has to enable that. And that's what microservices let you do. It lets these teams independently operate, communicate through their separate APIs, and then pre- present it all through a single unified API to some sort of front end for presentation. The experience was, you know, for me, phenomenal, right? I saw this kind of compounding value and velocity of development that I had never seen before, right? I hadn't seen Google in its early days. And I can imagine Google was like that because there was this pure need to scale. And when there's like this need to scale, you start to see all sorts of interesting things. And for us, when we saw that and and we start to build very, very quickly on this platform, it just enabled something very interesting where it's a bit like um, it's a bit like what software is like now with GitHub, right? Before GitHub, open source was it wasn't really great. It's like you know we had SourceForge and all these different sites where you could share code, but mostly people were maintaining their source source code on some server that they were hosting, and it was completely isolated and siloed to that environment. So there was nothing around what we now call like you know social development or social code sharing, whatever. And GitHub unlocked that for the world and open source. And what that meant was rather than completely rewriting a piece of software, you know, from scratch, much like we all did, right? And thousands of people did. Now you would go to GitHub, you'd search for that thing in the language of your choice. You would just download it, use it, and you're done. And that would increase the velocity of your development, right? Because you didn't have to write that thing. And it was the same thing for services and APIs at our company, which was to say, if a person had already written it and it was running, you could just reuse it by calling it, right? So you didn't even have to run it. You didn't have to download it. All you had to do was go look to see if it existed. You could call it and you were done. And that was something like I had never seen. And so this is something that I see that's kind of locked up inside of some of the biggest technology companies today And I just imagine, like, what if this could be a product? What if this platform was a product? And that sparked something in me that made me decide to kind of set off and do it. So democratized microservices, essentially. Yeah. So rather than being siloed, which is great, you know, take what you love and know about open source and take what you love and know about the way companies that are leveraging microservices are building microservices and making them available to their teams, do it for everyone yeah do it you know cross team cross org and then think about the velocity of development and compounding value for the world right where rather than everything being siloed in a google in an amazon in a facebook and an uber 
actually the next biggest things are built by a small team. You know, there are dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of these companies all running on a single platform where they all share that and they can all go compete against a Google. They can all go compete against a, you know, Facebook, whoever else. This is an interesting thought though. Cause I mean, when you look at the companies you named, they in many cases have revenues and cash reserves bigger than most countries, GDPs. Like they're just massive. They have such, such control, such power. Not that that's bad. There's obviously downsides. I'm saying like they've definitely worked their way to get there. They've used the system to get to that point. And we as a society have allowed major corporations to essentially have key control over data flow, privacy, awareness, control of technology, etc. And maybe the world that you're going to build or trying to build you know, maybe I'm just uh, seeing more of your vision, but just seeing how that can be, what that might be like if it was not locked inside of companies and it was available like open sources. If I could just call an API or a microservice that's built and use it similar to the way I might use it inside of Spotify if I was building a playlist generator or something like that or a playlist recommender or something like that. If I could do that because somebody else already built something like that out there in the world, what that might do for their power. That might change it. I think honestly, like the advantages Google has and one engineer at Google has is the thousands of services and that shared platform that they all get to build on, right? That scale. And once you leave those companies, you don't have any of it. Once you quit a job, you have nothing that you had at that job, right? It's all gone. And now you have to rebuild something. So a lot of engineers just work in two-year cycles from company to company, rebuilding the same things over and over. And it's maddening. And and I think the key thought is like, what if it all existed out in the open and you could just use it, right? And it's available. And and the other key thing to think about is like, it's not just that like, hey, this API is available, that API is available. We have lots of APIs. We have API fragmentation. I have to sign up for every single provider. I have to learn their APIs. I have to understand how to use them. They're all different. It's unique snowflake. What I need is a shared platform a shared model of development and a way that I can just reuse each one with this kind of known understanding of how they work. That's why things work inside companies, right? Because you have this shared experience and you have to bring that to the world. And the only way that really works is when we end up having new platforms, new operating systems, new development models, right? So desktop, web, mobile, I think cloud is the next one, but we've only been focused on hardware and infrastructure and cloud. We haven't been focused on operating systems, development models. So I think we're slowly kind of, you know, getting our way there. Mm -hmm. We're a little ahead of ourselves, though. We're kind of into the details of what you're doing now, but we haven't quite spoken of what you're really doing now. So what are you really doing now? Yeah. So as I was saying, like, I saw this thing at Halo and I just felt like it could be a product and a company and something that could compete against AWS and others at the next level, right? Do what GitHub did for open source, but for APIs. And so I left to find this company called Micro. Micro started out as an open source project, which provided a developer framework for microservices development. It's evolved into being an open source cloud platform for API development. And a couple of years ago, I raised some VC funding to build that as an actual hosted platform. So to realize the dream, really, to create this shared platform on which we can all build APIs 
uh, using a single development model. And you know open source well, you've been involved in open source, but why did you begin at open source? I suppose at the project level rather than venture capital and creating a company, why many years later are you at the company creation stage? Yeah, you know, I really looked at the way in which technology was adopted and how things grew over time. And I realized that, you know, everything started from the smallest kernel of an idea. I started from putting something in the hands of the developer, right? So for me, it was really about what is the smallest thing that I could put in the hands of the developer that they would adopt, would scale, create a community, and then that would actually allow me to go into the next phases. I think it's very hard to start with this kind of platform idea and then actually manifest that into something that works. And we've seen countless people try, you know, Heroku. We've seen the Herokus of the world who have attempted it. Even Docker was .cloud before before it was an open source Docker. So I think those platforms- a whole different company part of Docker. Exactly. You know, it was- a, Almost an accident. It was, yeah, it, was, it was a platform as a service company. And so I think having seen those things not really work, I realized, you know, I need to do something a little bit different and I need to focus on, you know, putting out this framework, right? The smallest component of a thing that people could adopt. Now, I would say that's not how it really started, you know, because nothing is ever a straight line to those things. I tried to build some things as a kind of platform thing before that, spent six weeks, eight weeks on it. And it just, you know, I could see that it wasn't going to work. But in that were the lines of code of the framework. And so I pulled out what I thought was the most valuable bit and then repackaged it, open sourced it. And that was the thing that was originally called Go Micro, which now has over 15,000 stars on GitHub. Yeah. Just shot 16,000, 15,7. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's definitely an accomplishment. And you mentioned before in terms of, APIs and fragmentation and whatnot that you needed a framework. And that's what this is. Like, that's probably why it made the most sense to begin there is a framework for if you're going to build a, a platform for microservices, distributed systems, then you need a framework or some sort of, you know, baseline for which to build from. That's what I thought, right? You know, I looked at Rails for Ruby and I looked at Spring for Java. And I think Spring was very much my my model because I'd seen it, seen what it had done for Java in the enterprise. And I felt like Go Micro could be this evolution of that. But my thinking evolved over time, right? Uh, selling developer tools is actually really hard. Rails was never monetized. Basecamp or, you know, the 37 signals before then, they built the product Basecamp using Rails. And that's what their business model was. Rails was just this project that they built. Spring sourced the company attempted to monetize Spring, very painful experience. I managed to sell it for a lot of money, but at the same time, they didn't actually monetize Spring. So they struggle. And so once I sort of understood that, I, and prefacing this with like, I did want to build a platform, right? But I didn't have the opportunity to do that. So I built the smallest thing that I could, which was this framework. And that framework and the success of that framework is what enabled me to go raise funding and, and go build that platform really. Do you think you were interested at first wanting to build the platform and wanting to build the business that makes the platform and runs the platform is two different things, right? From a technology standpoint, being a maker, a creator in software is way different than leading and running a business. 
I'm sure you got some scars you could share in this conversation to that fact, but did you want to run a business? Do you want to run a business? Is that, did it take you a while to get there if that's the, if that's what your answer is that you did? Yes, I would say yes. Yes, I do. But also I knew that like, I was not in a place to know how to, right? So we I never did are. get- yeah, It's no, like kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. You, there's never a good time to have kids. You just have kids. They just you can't time children. Yeah. You, know, you, just, ha- you just have them. Having having a nine-month-old myself, I understand this experience quite yeah. well now. It's, it's quite- You got a one-year-old and a five-year-old and a 16-ish-year-old. Oh, I don't know how you're juggling it. I don't know how you do it. It's challenging. Yeah. Conversations like this make it worth it though, so. It's good. I uh, Yeah, I adore my, my kid. I love her. But- Yeah, it's challenging. And so, you know, for me, I think about it from a life perspective, right? Life is evolution of oneself. You should never be static or staying the same. You know, you should be different at the end of your life than you were when you started your life. You should have learned a lot of things. And I think for me, that is part of my work. And so I had been an engineer for a long time. I didn't want to stay an engineer. And so I always knew I wanted to run a company as the next thing that I did. And so, you know, after I had open sourced that piece of software, I went and tried, tried to raise funding right then and there. And I just couldn't, you know, the, it just, for whatever reason, my naivete, my inexperience, you know, lack of product, whatever it was, uh, I just wasn't able to do it then. It took a lot of years of learning a building and um, a bit of luck for me to get to that point. And I would say like, even then being able to convince some people to give you money so that you can like play CEO, like doesn't mean you're any good at it. Doesn't mean like you're successful. Doesn't mean you're any better at business. There's still so much to learn. I think we have a lot of examples out there where maybe there's some that have gone before us, let's just say, and they make it seem easy. Yeah. Because you, you kind of know where they're at. And they still seem like you appear, not Elon Musk. Elon Musk is not one of your or my, maybe, peers. Definitely not my peer. But it's easy to look at what they've done and where they're at today and what they've accomplished and and sort of bypass or not even see the struggles they had to go through. Yeah. Or the millions of dollars they lost. I saw recently uh, Andrew Wilkinson, somebody I totally respect and somebody who's been on the show before, he shared a story about how he lost $10 million with Flow, the task app they built. And he shared like this big tweet thread about the stories. But I think it's easy to look at someone like him and think, wow, you've really got it together. You've never messed up. You've you've always been good. You've always been the best CEO. You've always been the best investor, the best husband, wife, brothers, whatever it is, you know, sister, whatever, you know, like pick your role in life. You've always been the best at it. But it's always I think it's easy to look past that because in so many ways we're influenced by others. There's filters available and we can filter out the bad for the good. And I think we want to see the superhuman, not the flawed person. Right. Of course. I mean, hopefully we're all optimistic and we aspire to those things. And, you know, we like to dream. Sure. I imagine people say the same thing about you, Adam, like, you know, changelog is very successful. Now they probably look at you and go like, Oh man, just like, look at this thing. You know, just, it just showed up one day. Yeah. Just like that. Just like that. No late nights, no sleepless weekends, <laughs> no hard work involved, you know, no gray hair. But, but like, you know, hey, he, you know, he put in the time and it just happened. Like it just, you know, of course it happened. Like there was no yeah. challenges there, no figuring out the strategy and stuff like that. Like, I think we all know different. And look, Elon Musk, 
you know, he even started with like Zip2, right? Like, and, and then X.com, which was the thing that merged with PayPal and everything else like that yeah. and put all of his cash into Tesla to stop it from going bankrupt, you know, and we hear all these stories about him and how he sleeps on his factory floor and whatever. So, you know, the guy is, he puts in all the work, he fails constantly, constantly, probably on a day-to-day basis, but like, all of that adds up to like those successes that are asymmetric that then enable him to go do the next thing and the next thing. So I think it's perseverance, grit, sheer force of will that those people, you know, if you look at those people who have made it and you look at the things that they have in common, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like some form of obsession, you know, some sort of grit, resilience, force of will, all this kind of stuff. Like that's what it takes. That's what I was going to add was resilience. Resilience is one of those underappreciated, under aware. I don't know how to describe it. People aren't very familiar with resilience at its core, you know, what it means. And I think I started to examine more so the concept of resilience around the pandemic. Yeah. You know, to understand like, okay, things are going to get difficult. Life's going to change massively. And I think those who understand and practice the concept of resilience were able to not so much navigate easier or better the pandemic or, I mean, I think it was super challenging for pretty much everybody I know. Yeah. But if you understand the concept, you can, it's just, I don't really even know how to describe it, but you just sort of like, you have a certain sort of like cushion or buffer in your psyche, not so much in your body, but in your psyche, in your mental state, your mental frameworks to take hard blows in life. And that's what you do as a founder, as an entrepreneur. You said before playing CEO, you know, because let's face it, anybody who's led, whether it's a CEO or engineering manager or a team leader or product manager, like you're a micro CEO or a mini CEO or a mini leader or a major leader, like at some point you're going to deal with failure. You're going to deal with big hits and it's how you respond to those things that sort of enables this concept of resilience and how you bounce back and persevere through those things. And that's, it's only something you can get good at by being bad at it for a while, you know, because you failure is going to teach you. It's, I mean, it's, it's so true. Look, this is not something that you just have as like a skill that you learn over time or, or like a thing that develops over time, much like, you know, any kind of muscle, any kind of thing that you do. It's just hours and hours of it, years and years of it. You know, the things that would make you cry as a five-year-old don't make you cry when you're 30, right? And that's like a thing you like, you fell over so many times at a certain point, you stopped crying. That's right. And so I think that resilience like is a thing in, in life and company building, even in the pandemic, like as a kind of side to everything, every day we wake up and we do our work and with startups, it's like, it's supposed to be the all encompassing thing, but you cannot ignore the pandemic. You cannot ignore COVID and like, the mental and physical toll that it takes on everyone is very apparent because it's not a month. It's not two months. It's not six months. It's been over a year. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, that's a thing I can take a lot. Like I can take a lot, but that's a lot. That is, you know, something else. Mm -hmm. I think it's, this is a collective. Everyone's experiencing a variation of the same thing. You know, it's, it's not just, you or me experiencing it and we can be siloed. It's, you can't avoid it because you can walk away from the day or the job or the family for a moment 
and you're going to know somebody who knows somebody who's been impacted by it, passed away from it, are still dealing with it. You got long COVID things, but I mean, you just can't avoid it. Unlike work nine to five, or if you compartmentalize, you know, whatever your nine to five measures out to, you can have isolation and encapsulation with the pandemic. No one that I'm aware of has been able to encapsulate themselves away from it. Maybe the 1%, maybe, but even them, their businesses are impacted by it. Their long views impacted by it. Maybe even the extra billions they made this year are impacted by, I don't know. Just saying like, no one's safe from it. Yeah, it's unavoidable. Nobody's safe for it. We're all facing it in all different ways. And, you know, just when you've had enough, it's still there. It it won't let up because it doesn't care, you know. And 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 I think we're all going to come out with some sort of new mental toughness from this. The, you know, those of us are fortunate to be healthy enough to still be here. You know, we'll come out with something from it. But there's also like you know, we're all going to have a lot of scar tissue and, and stuff to deal with. But like, this is part of resilience, right? This is how resilience is built. Like you have to go through things like this, whether you want to or not. And on the other side of it, I, I don't want to compare things to COVID, but like, these are the things that you deal with. And, you know, eventually, hopefully it's something comes of it. Yeah. Well, I think the struggles we've gone through with COVID are immeasurable. To compare them to ring a company is probably not a great comparison, but they definitely are parallel. They're significant challenges that you have to get through. Like we as a human race have no choice but to get through this. As a leader, sometimes you have no choice but to get through the next round of funding or potential layoffs or hiring or leading or admitting failure sometimes and and persevering and, and pivoting or whatever. They're not directly comparable, but there's definitely a lot of similarities in terms of like just simply struggle that you got to get through. And that's what we found as, as families. we got to get through some of these things. We have to get through it. We're experiencing it all in the same breath, in the same time. Like there's no, uh, there's no separating at this point, right? Like everyone's working from their home. You come out, whatever is declared as your office right now, into the next room and your family's there. The context switch is immediate as opposed to, you know, being through a commute or Buffered. something else. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So like, you know, it's all one in the same at this point. And so it's part of it, right? So part of that challenge now in your company is COVID. And as much as people attempted to ignore it before, like, okay, you know, we're not going to be in the office. We're still going to try to figure it out and keep working. All right, everyone's going to be on Zoom forever. And then you're like, okay, maybe this is not working. You know, maybe my people are totally burned out. Maybe, you know, maybe we need to like do something that isn't work. Maybe we all need some time off. Like all of us took this week off at my company. It's like, hey, we're burned out. We need some time off. Like one guy's going to take off time off. Oh, no. You know what? We're all going to take the week off because we're all burned out. And like, you know, we're doing this thing later in the year when the pandemic is over and everything's reopened. Everyone's going to get a month off paid. We're just going to take it off because we can't ignore this. This like this is our mental and physical well-being. And we're all suffering and like. There's some sort of expectation that like when the world reopens that we're just going to go sit in an office or something and keep working. I'm not doing that. My team's not doing that. We're going to go all chill out. You know, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. Gosh, yeah. I mean, thinking about later this year when the things have, I guess, shifted. I'm still waiting for the day to be 
declared over. I know vaccines are definitely pushing back on it. I know here in the U.S. there's been a struggle to get everyone. This isn't a show for COVID. We'll hang on here for just a minute longer, but I don't want to dwell on this subject because it's not the point of it. But I'm happy to talk about it, of course. It's very serious. but And I think it's awesome that you're giving people that time off pay too. But I'm so looking forward to when this, not so much normal is back, but when we can sort of just hang out together without the anxiety of, are you going to get me sick? Am I going to get you sick? That's, I'm not trying to like make it normal again, but I would like to be human, you know, with other people. There's been times we would not be on the Zoom call. We'd be hanging out at a conference or hanging out together wherever it is in the world. And that's just been such a struggle. And I think as a human race, you know, one thing I learned, I mentioned brain science earlier, but one thing I learned producing that podcast is as humans, one of the critical things of being a human is connection. You find a person, an in, you know, a human, adult, young, whatever, pick an age, isolated by themselves, you're going to find a human struggling massively, not like a little bit, very much struggling. It's connection. And I'm waiting till we can, I'm excited about the day we can be more connected again like we normally had been. That's the normal I'm looking forward to. Not so much the normal of like doing whatever you want, but like being able to connect again. And I think that's what all, what drives us all is, is that human connection. Because the reason you mentioned this business earlier, the reason we do this business, change all the media and produce these podcasts and do what we do, we came for the tech and we stay for the humans. Like that's the point. It's about the people and that's really what matters. The tech is obviously awesome and we love talking about technology and innovation and, you know, the next frontier and the next 10 years or whatever it might be. But if it's for that and not for the humans, then it's not worth it to me. Like it, it needs to be about the humans. So it's about the human connection more than anything. Here, here, man. I, I, I think that's what companies are all about. That's uh, what building, you know, products are all about. It is about the people. It's about the team that comes together to build it. You know, for me, I was part of that team at Halo. That's what I really loved. And I wanted to be able to go with that team to go build that product and company. That next thing, we just couldn't get it done. And so I spent the next four years bootstrapping it solo. I would tell you, yeah, that's super hard to go from like this team dynamic to doing open source alone for four years. Um, that's a whole other thing. Coming up next, Asim shares the struggles he's faced taking micro from an open source project to a commercially viable business. This episode is brought to you by Snowplow Analytics. Snowplow is the behavioral data management platform for data teams. Maximize the value of your behavioral data using Snowplow Insights, a managed data platform that's built on leading open source tech leveraged by tens of thousands of users. Capture and process high quality behavioral data from all your platforms and your products and deliver that data to your cloud destination of choice. When marketing needs to make data informed decisions, when product needs next level understanding and when analytics needs rich and accurate data snowplow is a solution for data teams who want to manage the collection processing and warehousing of data across all their platforms and products get started and experience snowplow data for yourself at snowplowanalytics.com again snowplowanalytics.com Some questions as sort of a primer to this conversation. 
I'm going to quote something, if you don't mind, from something you had said. So I think this is give us some premise to talk around. You said, in regards to lessons learned, you said the journey from an open source project to a commercially viable business is also one littered with a lot of dead bodies. I'm six years into the journey and still here. I have stories to tell. So let's crack that nut. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's from that blog post, isn't it? Yeah, when I started this, I really felt like, hey, you know, I'm going to go raise a bunch of money. I'm going to take this team. We're going to go build a product and we're going to win. And in five years, we're going to be doing $100 million ARR and it's going to be phenomenal, right? Because I'm Asim Aslam and I know what I'm doing. That's right. And, you know, it turns out like the world's going to kick you in the butt and say otherwise. And so I learned a lot in the last six years. I learned uh, a lot about how to build something that's, I guess, maybe a successful open source project. And I learned a lot about what is not a commercial business and the path through that to try to build something that potentially is, right? And we've talked about this, which is like, there's all these things that you look to and you just see the successes, right? You see the headlines of them like raising funding and doing really well and and all this kind of stuff. And you're looking at yourself like, hey, I'm not doing well. This is not going well. Uh, you know, what's going on? There's a lot I have learned in that journey, which is to say like the 99% of people are not on that journey that's in the headlines. They're on a different journey. They're on this journey. And maybe not even this. They might not even get to the chan- you know, to the point of having something like this. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. I learned... I would say more so in the last two years, this concept of what am I optimizing for? Because I think you have to have, you'd mentioned, you know, other people and their success and comparing yours versus theirs or what they've got and what you, you know, in terms of funding or this doesn't match up to your reality. And I think it comes down to understanding what you're trying to do. What are you trying to optimize for? What am I trying to optimize for? And I read this book and I've, I'm almost tired of mentioning it because I feel like I mentioned it too much, but it's essentialism. But understanding what the difference between the vital few versus the trivial many, to be able to focus, which is a sheer skill, but then also to really just understand what's essential to you. And what's essential to you is different than what's essential to me. But what's essential to me helps me understand what I'm optimizing for and helps guide my choices and helps understand, helps me understand what my success is. Because we're not, I have a bad time saying absolutes. We probably won't take venture capital to run our business. That's not the kind of business we're in. We probably won't have a downtown New York headquarter office because we're in media. We probably won't even co-locate our team because we both value family life. So because of these, just a few for sure is for us. Like these are facts about the way we decide to live our lives there's some things we we probably won't be as a business. So that helps us guide ourselves. But not everybody goes through the process to understand that about themselves. And they end up taking the wrong roads in their lives, thinking that, oh, I'm trying to measure up to this person, to that person, or to this fundraise, or to these dreams, because that was their dreams. And you forget to like examine really what you want. I'll mention Mary one more time. She said, try clothes on. Like you go to a store, you try clothes on before you buy them. So, not all the time, but most times. Try on a decision before you make the decision. It's something that she had said before. So sometimes try on this choice before you make this choice because it may not be what you really want to make. 
that's some wise words. You know, I think it, a lot of people rarely self-reflect on what they actually need or what, what they want. And usually it's outward focus. You see someone, you're like, I want what that person has. And uh, a lot of what we come to expect of ourselves is based on a comparison of what we see out there, right? We look at maybe what we want, where we want to be, and we look at the person who's there, the company that's there, and we're like, oh yeah, I could get there. So what do I, what do I need to do to get there? I need to do whatever they did. And it's like, you try to map your path. And then if you're not meeting those expectations, you're like, well, why am I not meeting these expectations? I'm really unhappy now because I'm not doing that. And constantly measuring yourself to something else. So you're right. Like, you know, what you do for yourself is should be different than, you know, what others are doing for themselves. Everyone's journey is uh, unique. For me, when I was not able to raise venture funding in the beginning, and I just had to do this, you know, initially there's this kind of phase where you're like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I wasn't able to accomplish that thing. That's the thing that I set out to do. I couldn't do it. I don't know what I'm doing that. And then uh, that went on for a while and then got a job for a short period of time. All I think it was all of eight weeks. I sort of instantly knew that it was not the right thing. Like, you know, that moment, you know, where you just like instantly know something is wrong. I knew that instantly when I had started, I'm not someone who like is just going to walk at the door. So I got that to a place where I thought it was uh, helpful. But the thing that made me leave that and regain some confidence in myself was I actually saw people using my software. A friend of mine had started to use it at one of his companies and another friend had started to inquire about it. And that gave me like this confidence like, oh, I think people produce open source software and they put it out there. And like a lot of stuff just doesn't get touched or used or developers are like super happy if anyone even like gives them a GitHub star. And if someone like creates an issue and it's like, oh, hey, I'm trying to use this. They're like super happy. But like, you know, when someone I knew started to use it, I was like, oh, <laughs> actually, OK, you know what? This might be real because someone I know is actually using it. And that's when I decided to like quit and just say, OK, I couldn't raise funding uh, nobody's going to do this with me. You know, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to like try to figure out. So, you know, I just started hacking day and night for months. I burned my own savings for about 10 months. And somewhere along the way, I ended up getting a corporate sponsorship through another friend who had gone to this German car rental enterprise called Sixth. And that enabled me to then keep going, you know, and to keep building. And I kept building as one person, you know, and just, you know, the self-belief that I was going to build something, you know, that would get adoption and scale and then eventually turn into a company and then become something successful in the way that I had dreamed. Maybe not in the short timeline that I had first expected to, but, you know, when I was able to reassess my expectations and my goals and everything like that, I could then figure out something that worked, right? And mm-hmm. and I just kept working. And here I am six years later still working. And, you know, I cannot say whether or not I'm successful because it's based on what measure are you kind of, kind of defining that by, right? In some sense, I'm successful by the measure of some sort of open source project that has succeeded, some sort of community that has been built. The fact that I'm able to pay myself and pay my bills, which is very rare in open source. You know, the fact that I was able to build open source and pay myself and pay my bills, that is something that's very rare. 
I would say I was successful in that. But in terms of company building and products and businesses, you know, that's yet to be seen. Yeah, I agree. There's there's stages to success. And while your company is on a trajectory to success, it's not quite there to be measured quite yet. Maybe even more so by your standards, not my standards. I'm only saying what you've said. But there's other variations of success in your path. I mean, going from one person to more than one person is a feat in and of itself. Getting somebody else to believe in your idea is incredibly hard. Getting somebody else to believe in what you think should be built and they're willing to build it with you and forego their their own opportunity, call it opportunity cost. I mean, that in and of itself is a struggle. That's where I'm, you know, if Jared's listening to this, you know, Jared's my partner, super thankful because he believes in what we're believing. He either believes in me or believes in it. I'm not really sure what he believes in. I think he believes in me too, but you know, I'm really thankful because gosh, to do this alone would be so be terrible. It wouldn't be as much fun. And you learn that lesson. Some people learn that lesson earlier that, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate around co-founders and whether they're required. And you often hear the argument or the question really from a venture capital perspective, like, you know, should, will I invest in a business that doesn't have a co-founder? Well, I think as an individual, I mean, unless you just super thrive as an individual and you've got a proven track record and you don't get lonely, you don't get bored or you don't get sidetracked just by your own admission, then a co-founder is for sure for you. But maybe not so much a co-founder, but just co-pilot, you know, somebody to go along with you to not do the road alone is a big deal. I mean, look, there's something to be said about having a partner in crime or, you know, in your mission and, and whatever. Hey, we have partners in life, you know, like it's important. Like we need that companionship and we need it in business as well. There are a lot of lows in doing this thing alone, right? And coming back to that whole resilience thing, you got to have a lot of that. You know, you got to have a lot of grit. You got to have a lot of self-belief because there's going to be so many moments where you're just like, why am I doing this? You know, mm-hmm. why? I should just stop. I should just go do something else. Like, what's the point, right? Like, why does it even matter? And so, you know, if you have people and if you have people you're doing it with, you know, there are the ebbs and flows, everyone goes through it, but each person can pick up the other person, you know, at that time and you're there together to do it. And so... I had to do it alone for a long time, but then eventually when I raised funding, I was able to go convince some people to come join me and those people worked at Halo. And so we had this mind share. We have this mind share of what can be built, what should be built. And you're right. Like it's hard to convince people to come join you, right? Like for me to convince the guy that I wanted to join me, like the first one, six months, (laughs) you know, the second one took a year. But like, yeah, they have opportunity costs. You know, the the best people are not free. The best people are always working. They're always doing something and they can work on anything. So why should they work with you? And so you really have to like, you know, convince them of that. And sometimes it's not just about like the idea or the mission or whatever. Like I was very, very mission driven, very focused on nothing but work for a very long time. And I think as I got married and I had a kid and mellowed out, I think that's helped and made people want to work with me mm. because I became more of a human. I became more of a person <laughs> that understood the needs of other people and that it's not just all about the work, but it's all about, you know, the other parts of work that make you want to be there. And and that's why it really works for me now, which is like, yeah, we all took the week off. We were, you know, 
it's time to take some time off is important. Other things like we're very family friendly because I have a family, the founding team, one of the others has a, a son as well. And it's it's important to us that we have the flexibility to spend the time with our kids or, you know, go do the things that we need to do. It's important that we take the time off when we need to. So it's, I, I think, yeah, convincing those people is not just about the mission, but it's about like, you know, some sort of shared understanding of what it means to be human. And if you understand that, then you will all do great work together, right? Because we can't all work 100% of the time. Yeah. Empathy and compassion are two under-understood and underutilized concepts. Empathy is super hard because it takes an awareness that not everybody has that isn't themselves. It's other people. And compassion, I mean, those two places, you, you can't actually give compassion if you don't have empathy. Empathy is a requirement of compassion. Compassion is an action. Right? You, you got to give it. You got to you know, somehow dole it out. And empathy is a critical piece of that. You, you can't be a compassionate person if you don't have empathy. And empathy is a tough thing, just period. It's a, it's a tough concept. I mean, in the world that we live in now, empathy is an even harder you know, thing than it was before. Mm. We all sit there on Slack and people don't have empathy for other people on Slack. You know, people don't have empathy for people they can't see, for emotions they can't see, you know, things that they can't feel, all this kind of stuff. And so it's, it's very hard. And even before in life, it was also very hard for people to feel for other people, right? It's like a thing that you have to, again, as you said, a self-awareness. But I'm not one to like, I'm not one to preach about like, hey, I have high EQ. I'm like, I have empathy, all this kind of stuff. Like, I don't like that. I think the people who preach about it don't have it. You know, it's like the self-awareness is to say nothing. And as you say, like, you know, it's the actions, right? Like, I think that's what's important. So I only really learn, you know, it's like you can have the awareness that I think the great awareness I had was that. I knew that at points in time, I didn't have empathy, right? Like I knew it, like I could say, hey, I understand empathy, but I didn't have it because I was a 20 something person who was just obsessed with working, you know, and I could not understand anything or anyone other than that, right? And as intelligent as I may think I, I am or was, you know, I didn't understand a thing. And it's only like, through life experiences that that I start to understand and learn and mellow out, you know, getting into your 30s and, and all that kind of stuff. And but yeah, it's all so important. It's all missing from the world now for some reason. I wish there was more of it. I wish there was. Yeah, that's uh that's why every chance I get to I mean, not that I'm by any means an expert. I'm just simply a curious person willing to and curious enough to examine what what those things mean and i think shared empathy or empathy in general and compassion can go a long way in uniting disparate fronts and it's a challenge it's a challenge period but i love sharing that that message about empathy because i think almost i can't say nobody thinks about it but it, it it's just such an undercurrent it's it's not on the purview for people, they're just, they're, I guess, maybe a little selfish, but I, I don't know. 
I don't, I don't want to say anything negative about people. I'm just saying I just see how people are, are less aware of what the impact of empathy is and really what it truly is in execution, not just simply an idea or this concept, but like in execution, what empathy looks like in real life. I think people have to be taught it. I, th I think like anything else, like it should be a curriculum at school. You know, it's a, th it's a thing that you should learn. It's definitely learned. Yeah, it's a skill. It's it's like you have to try it. You have to try to do it. I think when you get to a place when you want to help people, that's when you start to develop empathy, right? When you want to help people, not, you know, I'm helping someone because, you know, because I think it's a good, you know, I haven't helped anyone lately. I should help someone. No, it's because you want to help people and you feel like you get something from that. That's, you know, that's, that's part of what it is. I think you want to understand what that person is experiencing, know how they feel. And then obviously act on that, whatever, whatever that is in, in, you know, a way that you could help them. Sometimes maybe that means doing nothing. You know, sometimes maybe you can't, maybe you can't, or maybe that means doing nothing. Right. But yeah, you know, there's all sorts of scenarios that we could talk about, you know, where that exists. And it's a tough one. I just, um, it feels like, you know, technology has taken some of that away from us, you know, like, especially things like Twitter. I used to use Twitter in a professional context. And at a certain point, I just found that like, it was amplifying the negative parts of my personality that I wanted to get rid of. And I deleted it. I deleted my account. I delete. I deleted Twitter, which I never thought I would do. You know, like I hear a lot of people like saying, like, "Oh, I'm going to delete Facebook. I'm going to delete Twitter. Whatever, whatever." I'm like, "Okay, fair enough." Like you're excluding yourself from an experience that the world is having. But at a certain point, I realized like that is not an experience that I want to have. Not anymore. Is that true today? You still don't have a Twitter account? I don't have a Twitter account. Not anymore. That is not an experience I want to have. As much as like there's certain professional value, I got great professional value out of that for my company, for micro, for everything. But beyond that, like I just found that, you know, it did amplify parts of my behavior that I didn't like, you know, and I was like, I don't, I don't want to be here anymore. If something like this doesn't allow me to filter my words, you know, if it just lets me put that out into the world that's not a place that I want to be. I want to remove that from my life and try to be a more positive person, you know? And so, yeah, that and like whatever other kind of social media I could get off of, I started to to get off of and I felt better about myself. I felt like, yeah, I felt like I was a better person for it. But the thing that you're looking, you know, but you lose certain connections there and you're trying to figure out like, how do you rebuild those connections in a healthier way? Like, why is technology not helping me do this? Even in open source, right? Like uh, there's this constant talk about, you know, the maintainer's dilemma and how they're faced with, you know, just this wall of complaints and things where it's very much like a, a system of usury, right? Like you're being used and abused and you're getting nothing for it. And you're kind of like, why are there not things here to, to help you? Like, I sort of ignore a lot of what goes on on open source. I quoting, you know, Salvatore Sanfilippo, the the creator of Redis, you know, like if there's an issue that he doesn't want to respond to, you know, he says I will close it in my mind. And that's it. You like that's the the best that you can do now on on you know, a platform like that. It's it's very hard to engage 
in places like that, because going back to what you said, you know, because nobody has empathy for anyone else, right? Like, hey, this thing doesn't solve my problem. Like, fix my problem right now. I don't care who you are. Fix it. You know, it's like it's just that's the kind of experiences that you have building open source. The not being on Twitter, the thing is a conundrum to me because I think being a founder in today's world of leading and running a company, especially a technology company, a startup, is to not have a Twitter account and, and to not be outward focused about your roadmap and what you're doing and, in quotes, working in public seems to be the expected norm. And maybe that's just me collecting a few names, assuming what they do as truth and what everyone should do. But it feels like to participate in the, in quote, startup world today must have Twitter account, must show up in these ways or should to benefit from network effects, sharing your message, people desiring to drink your Kool-Aid, use your platform, adopt your technology. What do you think about that? Uh, your previous guest did not have a Twitter account. I know. Spencer did not have a Twitter account. <laughs> Don't surprise by. Touche. Touche. Look, I think you're right. It's become a thing, right? It's become like a de facto thing that you do. You have a Twitter account. It's a channel in which you advertise both yourself and what you're doing and share every random thought that you could be possibly having at any given moment. I don't think that's necessary. I disagree with that one. I don't think you should have no, to share your you, sh- you shouldn't, but it seems to happen. It does. It depends if you don't have self-control, though. I think the people that feel that way either haven't learned or think they need to let go of their self-control. Like, you don't need to be unfettered and unfiltered to participate in social media. I say this as someone who is with you. I am on Instagram. I used to post a lot to Instagram. I haven't posted in many years because I showed up for the wrong reasons. I still have my Twitter account, but I don't exercise the outward focus of it. I generally just respond to other people and like their things, and I don't show up in the way of sharing my feelings. And so I come from where you have been, which is cancel social media for me because it doesn't allow me. It brought me to negative places, didn't give me the emotional payout we talked about earlier. So it it led me down roads I didn't want to go down and bog my mind with things I didn't want it to be bogged down with. Now I'm seeing it as a different way, as a different utility, if used wisely. I agree with that. Look, if you understand how to use it effectively, then it's a good tool. If you don't, then it can work its way, you know, it can work itself against you. And and I think it worked against me and to a point where I don't like crowds. You know, when I see people running in one direction, I tend to stop and walk the other way just to make a point. And but it's been like that my whole life, like something, something goes off in my head. And I'm just kind of like, I need to get away from this for some reason. There's something, there's something not quite right about this. And so when I look at it now, you know, it's a herd mentality, something about it speaks to me about a herd mentality in a, in a type of behavior that I don't like this self-promotion, you know, like I don't want it. I don't want it to be a part of my being. And, and I think like, as a, look, as a startup founder, I think it's one channel that we're now missing because I'm no longer there tweeting, but at the same time, I think we can fix that with developer marketing and other kind of, you know, things where 
you find someone who does have that channel for that purpose or, or whatever else they don't just because I'm not on it doesn't mean the company doesn't need to be on it but you're keying on something that was not intended to be the topic of this conversation but very much something I've been thinking about a lot I feel like to be a leader of a company or to have an idea and bring it into the world and serve people in whatever way makes sense, you have to schlep your wares. You know what I mean? Like look at somebody on Instagram with their, they have to live, eat, and it feels like they have to live, eat, and breathe their company. If you've written a book, man, you must pimp the crap out of that book. You know, like you must schlep it to the nth degree. You must go and like live this thing. And I just, I think that's terrible. It sucks. It makes you not want to be a founder or a leader or a starter or a finisher or an executor, whatever you want to call the person or people who make and lead and build because you feel like you can't have family and life balance and friends and time off and separation from who I am as an individual, you know, who I am with my friends and family to not that I'm a different person, but like that you've got to know all the parts about me to buy my thing. You must have access to all the things in my life. I must have zero secrets. I must share all my thoughts and must lay it all out there for you. And maybe I'm overstepping or over saying exactly how it is, but that's kind of like a version of that is like, I, I think that's kind of nasty. Kind of sucks that that's the way the world is. Like, I don't think it should have to be that way. I agree with you. I think the world has lost itself. Social media started out as something. Well, actually it wasn't, it didn't start as social media. That's the initial point. It's social networks. You know, they started out, as something quite interesting as a way to bring your friends online and have some sort of new experiences online, which was interesting because we're all so disconnected, right? Before cell phones, before we could do anything, like you'd have to literally see someone in person or call them. They would have to be at home. And it became a way for us all to share experiences asynchronously or online, whatever it was. But then it became something else. And now it's something... I think a lot of people are seeing that it's not healthy. It's maybe not the right thing for everyone. And those things are rightfully so being called social media now. It's media where you follow people with millions of followers, prominent accounts, whatever, for whatever reason. And that's not really where you're having your interactions with your friends or your family. Those things are now again happening offline or in WhatsApp, in some sort of private messaging system, whatever it is, right? Like there's become this kind of bifurcation of how those experiences are lived in the real world. And that is part of what has kind of just pushed me away from it as well, right? Like it's just no longer a thing. You know, I was on Twitter for a decade, a decade. That's, I mean, that's a long time mm -hmm. and I'm no longer on it. The same with Facebook. I was on Facebook for a long time. Eventually it stopped being valuable to me. And I'm sure you know, other platforms will emerge where we will try to use them and the same thing will happen. But I don't think I will ever be part of another public one. I don't, like you're saying, like people are put in this position where they feel like they have to promote all of their work and live and breathe it 100% of the time. Schlep. I don't feel, yeah, it's like schlep. I didn't want to use the word, but you used the word. Is schlep um, a bad word? I think it's... That's fine. I mean... Well, it's a somewhat negative way to, it just feels like that. Yeah. It may not really be that in execution, but it feels like you're just schlepping your wares. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. And I did live and breathe my work and my company and everything. And even now to an extent I do, but I don't need to do it like that. You know, I don't want to do it like that. I want to be the person who 
seeds this thing, who creates this thing, who starts some sort of movement in because I create something of value and people want to talk to other people about it or use it or whatever else. And, you know, if that works and turns into something and, and we build a great business out of it, fair enough. If we don't, then I'm okay with that because, you know, I didn't compromise on on my beliefs or the way in which I wanted to build something. I think throughout this whole thing, that's maybe one thing that's held me back is that like, I wasn't willing to compromise on a lot of the ways in which I wanted to build my company or what I believed. And that's okay. I'm willing to accept that because a lot of people have a lot of money thrown at them and then they do whatever they have to, right? Or they compromise and whatever. Like the way people are able to bend their belief system, their morals, their values, whatever it is to make it okay to do certain things, whatever it is, I'm not that person. You know, I'm just not that person. I won't do that. I don't really care. Like, because I have something else to answer to. I have something else to think about. And I'm not going to like talk about it because like, I don't think it's the point of this, but like there's something, something else drives me and it's not money yeah. and it's not greed. And we all need a compass yeah. and we all are driven by whatever that compass is for us. And I think it's good to have lines in the sand for yourself of what you will and will not do to reach whatever success becomes or is to you. And that's, the necessary rudder to guide you. Yeah. The other thing is like, as you do this stuff, you know, what you value and what you think you wanted is not the same thing as what you thought you wanted, which is you see these things like, oh, I want to build this massive company. I want to build this really successful billion dollar company, whatever it is. And over time you realize like, maybe that's not the thing that you really value. Maybe that's not the thing that you really care about. And And actually, it's the thing that you want to get the furthest away from. Because I think when I started this, I still, you know, I still believe that like building this massive monopoly of a business would be an amazing thing. But over time, I've witnessed what these monopolies have done in the world. And I actually think that's like the complete opposite of what I want to do, you know, and like, and I realized that like, if I build a massive corporate entity I just end up in the same place that they are. And, you know, even if I'm trying to democratize development through APIs and things like that, if I have a platform, it's the same thing. So does, I mean, that makes me no better than them, right? I don't think so. And someone will be sitting here listening to this conversation and be like, and that's exactly why you won't be successful. They'll be sitting here and saying that. And yeah, that's not the point. The point is to reimagine what it means to build something to reach that scale that doesn't compromise on that, to say that like something's wrong with these monopolies and that the thing that we build in the future will look very different and it will not be another monopoly. The next super successful trillion dollar thing will not look the same as what these things are, right? And so that's what it's really about, like, you know, to think about it differently, to not have that herd mentality, to not just like see all these things and 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 go after that, but to try to do something different. Are you a fan of Silicon Valley, the TV show by any chance? Yes, hilarious. You watched the whole, every season? I did, yeah. You remind me a lot of like, you know, at least not so much in reality, but like some of the things you're saying, similar to the struggles that Richard Hendricks dealt with as a, as a character. Like he spent the whole character arc attempting to 
trying very hard not to, and sometimes compromising on his beliefs, bending, as you said, and in many ways not wanting to be what his nemesises were. There's a couple throughout the, the show, and in some cases he actually was very much like them. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm going to come out as a parody of myself in this uh, conversation. Don't but we all, though, to some degree? Yeah, you got to be able to. Sure. You got to be able to laugh at yourself. But no, look, I think um, a lot, a lot of what's in Silicon Valley is true, right? And we make jokes out of it, but like that—that's true of most most founders, which is like they have this dream or belief or this idea, and to achieve something, they end up having to compromise on a lot of that because people have given them a lot of money. And now they have to go build a business. And it turns out that like to make money, you have to sell it to the people that you didn't think you were going to sell it to. Like the people who you're exactly trying, you know, to target the opposite of, right? Like, so, and people don't see that, right? Because they're just kind of like, well, if I just get my opportunity, I can do it differently. If I just get my opportunity, you know, and that's where you have to really think very deeply upfront. And that's where you lose a lot of your opportunity, right? Like, that's why I'm not the guy with like $20 million on TechCrunch or whatever, you know, because I don't want to compromise on what I want to build or how I want to build it. I mean, look at GitHub, right? GitHub bootstrapped their business to phenomenal success. Then they took significant venture funding. Then it all started to go very wrong, you know? And, and you know, they, they had to go build... A business. They had to go build a real commercial viable business. And the people that had all the money are enterprises, Fortune 1000 companies, whoever else. And oh, okay, you got to hire a sales team. You got to build this sales force and you got to build this enterprise product. And that's completely the opposite of what the culture of the company was. And I mean, that company almost died. Yeah. They struggled with enterprise for a while there. They almost died. And as much as we think Microsoft, whatever we think of Microsoft, like Microsoft was all about developers for a very long time. And they revived that thing by, I mean, I don't really know what GitHub's commercially viable model is, but at the same time, like whatever it was, was the thing that was, it was like oil and water to whatever the company was, right? Mm -hmm. And like, if you don't find a thing that fits with your business, and this is incredibly hard in open source, right, to find that, then you're just going to be this enterprise software company that like has cannibalized your open source kind of offering or whatever else it is. Your community, you're going to cannibalize your community to, you know, build this thing because you want to make a lot of money. You got to scale, you got to hire. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, GitHub is an interesting example because, uh, I'd actually had a conversation with Chris Wanstroth and Tom Preston Warner three months after they kicked off GitHub, literally three months. It was, I'll have to look at the date on the podcast episode. It was February 2008 when we talked to them. I was in San Francisco for Web 2.0 conference from O'Reilly or something like that. And we met at Pivotal Labs and we were in a obscure office they had just sitting there and we had these old school roadie kits that we took. And uh, I just remember... I say that to say, I remember the beginnings when it was just literally three people who met at a bar, had a similar idea of how to use this new cool version control system called Git, GitWeb, and how to social code, which you said earlier, their original tagline was social coding, GitHub, social coding. That was what they were all about. 
and I think, you know, along the way of building a company, you definitely are met with roads where they cross to make you compromise like what you thought you would never choose that direction. That's the thing with resilience too, is not just in getting through it's it's resilience with yourself because you're going to have to change your mind to succeed and compromise in thoughts you had or choices you may have wanted to make. And I say from a, a moral perspective, never cross those. Don't compromise on those. But from a ideological perspective, then I think that those things can be malleable to new shared experiences or new perspectives in life. Every new road gives you a new perspective. So use that to your, to the wiser to find new paths in life. But GitHub is super unique because that acquisition with Microsoft definitely took the company in a different direction. It had issues at the leadership level and I respect and love the people that began that company. But at some point, what's the saying? Like you die hero, you live long enough to something or other. What's the, somebody listening to this will point it out in the comments or something like that, but it's either you die a hero or you live to tell something or other, but it's essentially that like, or you die a villain or you, you live to, I have to look it up. I'm butchering it terribly, but it's like that, you know, like, these people began what is now GitHub and, you know, along the way they made mistakes and did things wrong in some cases and way wrong in other cases. But the platform, I think, is what, interesting enough, the word the platform was said about a thousand times in Silicon Valley. The platform, however, is super useful to society, as we said before. And you have this belief about open source that it's the trust factory. If software, I heard you say this in your breakout at, uh, at Open Source Core Summit that the trust factor in software today is if it's not open source, there's an inherent trust with being open source. And so as utility, as a societal utility, GitHub has played a pivotal major role. Thank you to Microsoft for stepping in and doing that. And thank you for, to Microsoft for changing your freaking ways because as a company, you were really weird back in the day. You know, you had some really issues, but thankfully you've turned around and understand. Hopefully they always stay this way, but they seem like a good company now. Actually, I can go back potentially to a podcast I was on forever ago, and I know I'm going on and on about GitHub, but I remember it was probably, I want to say in like 2012, 2013, it was when Microsoft was showing signs of being trusted again, being trustable again as a business for the people, and that wasn't always the case. And I remember saying on a different podcast called The Industry Radio Show with Drew Wilson, and Jared Arandu, we were saying like, I'm rooting for Microsoft to turn the boat around, to change for the good for the people. And I think as people who both live and breathe and eat and open source can appreciate what has happened with GitHub and with Microsoft over these years. They're not the perfect best company all the time. We all make poor choices as individuals and companies. But I think what they've done with GitHub is remarkable for where we need open source to go. And there's still a long road. And I think they're a company that's listening to what developers need and want and what we as a society need and want from open source, from licenses to platform to whatever. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think the key thing to remember is like Microsoft was all about developers. It was started by developers and it was all about developers. And the way they serve developers changed over time. And some of that just meant like evolution of thinking. So there was a period of time at which open source was not a big thing. That company has been around for like four decades, right? So like there was a period of time when open source was just not a thing. And Microsoft had to learn 
that, hey, open source is real. It's all about developers and that you need to champion this thing. And once they understood that, they got on board and they did the right thing, which is they acquired GitHub and they they started to make lots and lots of things free. To me, that is a phenomenal thing. Like this should be like a God-given right to people, right? That they should be able to sort of use that platform in whatever sense. I understand that that's not a real business model, but like at the same time, like they're making their money elsewhere and, and that's why for them, this is like a huge marketing channel, but it really works. And so I think GitHub is the place where some of the most important source code of our lifetimes live and will live forever. Like Linux, the Linux kernel is there, you know, Kubernetes is there, Docker is there, and countless other projects are there. And so I think for the next decade, that will continue to be true. And then we have to really see like, you know, what is the next thing beyond that? Where is the next place where we all congregate as developers and share and reuse and what becomes that thing? Is it another platform? Is it a thing that will be owned by a large entity like a Microsoft? Or will it be something different? You know, that... I think is uh, is a complete unknown because I can't I can't really name that next uh, platform at the moment. I mean, Adam, can you do you know like have you any thoughts of like what that next big thing is? I would probably say I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue what the next big thing might be. I mean, there's indicators of what's big or what's shaking out there. I know there's a lot of attention around cryptocurrency. There's a lot of attention around Web three and decentralized web. There's a lot of, but they're, you know, they're waiting for the killer app or slash apps to really break it open. I think it's very focused on the same with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. It's very focused on the tech and you can't reach mainstream really if you're just so focused on the tech. And I think that's the hard thing happening there. I think that's the bigger things really taking place currently. Well, those are unproven ground. That's where the pioneers are kind of hanging out. That's where the proverbial gold is being mined because that's where the the rush might take place is in this new thing. Oddly enough, Silicon Valley, again, like they were building the web we deserved, right? They were building a decentralized web built upon an algorithm that was all about compression. And that's what it was about. And I think in many ways, decentralized is becoming a more prominent thing. And that's where I think you'll see a lot of new and exciting things happen. I think it was Spencer Kimball said it really good on the last episode. There's nothing new under the sun in terms of tech it's just reuse and reduce that's kind of where we're at he's right there's no new idea it's just about the timing so it usually things show up a decade too early and then they get tried again and then something works and i think you know to me it's sort of desktop web mobile cloud and then there's some next piece right which is like edge or networks or something like that and it keeps going you know, where we get to like this ambient computing model where technology is everywhere and actually you no longer even carry around devices. It's just like it's always on, it's everywhere, it's embedded in the world. But networks, you know, networks are the thing for me that exists beyond cloud. Some of that infrastructure is being done in this kind of blockchain, peer-to-peer cryptocurrency stuff. But you're right, it's like early internet where they were defining the protocols, they're figuring out the use cases, there was no clear, once we start to develop the browser, that's where web really took off. And then the use case took off for the internet. But like crypto doesn't have that thing yet. And I mean, people think it's money, right? Like it's banking and maybe it is like, but 
right now I'm, I'm more focused on this kind of cloud thing, which a lot of it has been driven around centralized platforms, which is fair enough. I just, I just think like GitHub really works for source code at rest. And I'm thinking like, you know, all these companies and what you find is like these things that are that exist inside of companies come out of the companies and become a social platform, right? So not just in terms of, you know, public social networks, but like developer tools. And so you're looking at it as like, okay, we have a public Git server, right? That everyone can share code on. Then next, it's quite possibly going to be some sort of platform on which you host that code. That's an entirely public and shared experience. Like right now we look at cloud providers as that, but that's not really that. That's not social. Cloud providers are, is a personal. Black boxes. Yeah, exactly. It's a black box on which you deploy infrastructure and your code. That's for you. You know, it's not a shared experience. So I think the cloud is really, the cloud is a multiplayer experience. And I think we're missing our multiplayer experience for these kind of services, you know, and things, which it'll be interesting to see. But at the same time, it's like a means to an end, right? Like it's a small piece of the puzzle because the end thing that you have to think about is the consumption of those things, those that software, those services, what is it used for? What do we end up building? GitHub, for all that it does in terms of like storing source code, how does it integrate with the rest of our experience and all that we do? I think that's the kind of, that's the more important part, right? More so than just being like this big, massive blob storage of a platform, right? Because that's what it is, right? You might as well like shove everything in S3 on AWS. Uh, every It could be a shared bucket for everyone and everyone could just shove their code in, in that. Beyond that, it's like, it's integrated into everything. You know, that GitHub is integrated into the workflow of everything. And I think whatever the next platform is, will become integrated into everything. Not just in terms of like the workflow, but actually literally everything that we consume. Because my whole thought is like, everything will be an API in the cloud, right? That's what's happening. Everything is becoming an API. And the end consumers of that are desktop, web, mobile, and whatever the next platforms are, AR, VR, everything else. So, you know, it will, those things will literally be embedded in everything. And that's your mission is to build this cloud operating system, essentially. Yeah, I, that, that's, you know, I have this grand vision, delusions of grandeur, whatever you want to call it. There's this thing that I see, this future that I think exists. And I always knew that I would regret if I didn't attempt to build it because I knew someone else would. Eventually, someone else will build it. And if I didn't attempt to build it, I would always live to regret that, right? So you always live to regret the things that you didn't do, not, you know, not the things that you did do. Like you learn from the things that you do, right? Those are the experiences that you learn from. But if you never did it, you'll always regret. You'll always wonder, you know, what if I did that? And and so we'll see. I think, I think right now I'm just working on, you know, not dying. Like the company, make sure the company doesn't die. That's the constant existential crisis of of any startup, which is like running out of money. And luckily I'm good with money. So I don't think I'll run out of money anytime soon, but at the same time that works against you, right? Like you got to spend it as well to actually accomplish anything. And so, yeah, we're trying to figure it out. Yeah. You can't just keep your money and not use it. You got to use it as a resource. And that's the hard part too, is how do you take, and that's what I think people who have 
uh, what's a good way to say it? They use their any wealth, and this isn't like a blanket case, but they're able to use their wealth as a way to have it work for them, you know, as a resource, not not so much that they have so much they can just be always investing or whatever, but like understand that principle. And that, as a matter of fact, going back to Cornelius Vanderbilt, I was at the suggestion of a past guest on Founders Talk, John Daniel Trask from Raygun, he was sharing with me different biographies he's read. And that was something that a principle that Cornelius Vanderbilt and all that they had built, you know, this is like the first entrepreneur essentially, you know, or at least in late history record that they had this idea that their money was always at work for them. And that's something I think is an interesting concept, especially as someone who has a runway, maybe a limited bank account. It may be big, but it's limited unless you can raise series B or series A or series C, whatever, wherever you're at, you know, to use and be able to know not just to keep it, but to use it as a resource to growth, as a growth mechanism. Because whomever gave you that money didn't give it to you just to let it sit there idle. They said, take this and use this to build. And sometimes build means marketing. Sometimes build means hiring. Sometimes build means letting it sit there for the right time or for the right investment or for the right maneuver. It's exactly that, Luke. I think I used to basically say this quite a lot, which is like, if I don't write the code, the code doesn't get written. And it was because I was the only one doing the work and I needed help from others to also do that work, right? And the only way to do that was to get money to pay these people to to do that work. And then that kind of compounds what you can actually build and increases that velocity. And you have to be able to spend the money effectively, right? And sometimes being too efficient can be a bad thing. Like order comes from chaos. So you end up having to spend a certain amount to actually create that chaos to then find that order. So I think one of my weaknesses is that I'm pretty capital efficient. But at the same time, Look, if you take money from investors, investors have portfolio theory, right? They're not making one bet, they're making 10, or they're making 20, or they're making 100. You're just one of many, right? As much as this is your only thing, you're one of many. So they want you to run as fast as you can, right? And if you fall off the cliff, doesn't matter. You're one of many in the portfolio. And they understand that like one is going to be a hit, four or five, we'll make our money back or maybe we'll do well and then the rest of them fail, right? And like, I don't want to be the one who fails. So a lot of the advice that I get is quite counterintuitive and I have to ignore some of it, right? I was given advice to hire very, very quickly before the recession, before COVID, right? Before any of that was coming up. But I was kind of like, hey, I'm look, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to hire the right people. I'm going to take my time. I'm going to figure this out because I don't know what I'm doing yet. I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I don't know. And I know that something is going to happen. I just don't know when, you know, then COVID happened, then a recession happened. And then you're getting calls like, hey, you know, we just want to check that, like, you're spending the money wisely. And it's like, well, you know, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's what I was always doing. Yeah, I'm not sweating. That's I wasn't doing that in the first place. But like, it's it's just, the you know, the way the game works, right, which is like, They're not giving you the money to like sit on it or not spending. Like the whole point is that you try to create the anomaly. You know, they want you to create the outcome that cannot be created by building a regular kind of business. Right. And if you're playing that game, you have to be on board with playing that game. But I also understand that like you can't 
force certain things in the very beginning of building a product in the company, right? Like there's this term that's, you know, people love product market fit. I mean, it's very hard to game product market fit or to spend a ton of money to like, you know, figure out product market fit. Like sometimes it's a walk in the woods. Sometimes, you know, it's a process of discovery. And for me, like, you know, it's especially with open source. The thing that I really understood very well about open source is it's three to four years of R&D to organically build your community and the foundations of your project, regardless of how much money you throw at it. You know, so I had done the hard work up front and everyone else who was burning capital didn't matter how much they were burning on marketing. Like it grows just as fast, you know, at the same rate. You know, and then the next phases of trying to actually build a business on top of that, like if you're really smart and you've done this multiple times, you might have a better idea of how to do it. But otherwise, investors are giving you the money to build your team and to like create. They're basically trying to get you to build like this thing that looks like it's successful, but isn't actually yet successful. Right. Because you're just burning the capital trying to figure it out. So you're hoping that you accumulate enough of the talent and enough of the people and enough of an outward success that something comes of it. And there's plenty of cases like that, but that's not what I'm about, you know? And and so like, for me, it's just a totally different game where I'm like, all right, I'm trying to, you know, and lots of people, you know, the early, the early phases of it, it's just like, I'm just trying, I'm trying to figure out like what's going to work. And I, I need to have a few people in the room, not lots of people, but a few people in the room who are going to help figure that out. And once we figured it out, then we'll go scale, you know, then then we'll go figure it out because that's what makes sense. So we're figuring it out. All right. This is our final break for the show. When we come back, we talk about product market fit for micro and how Asim is navigating the challenges of an evolving idea. This episode of Founders Talk is brought to you by Send in Blue. Send in Blue is a fantastic platform for growing businesses who want their digital marketing and sales tools to help them thrive. Do it all. Email marketing, marketing automation, CRM, transactional emails, smart segmentation, live chat for your site, landing pages, sign up forms on Facebook ads. Take your digital marketing to the next level. Head to sendinblue.com slash founders talk and use the code founders talk to get one free month and 100,000 emails. Again, sendinblue.com slash founders talk. Would you say that you're at or nearing product market fit then? Because figuring it out is kind of like alluding to not product market fit. I would say, yeah, we're figuring out. You know, I think the key thing, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and like, and be like, ah, we got it all figured out. You know, we're, it's all amazing and working. Like this entire journey for me has been a very hard, grueling journey. All of it. Like the, I don't feel that there's I don't think there's been a moment where I felt like a sense of relief that it was just like, oh yeah, this is working, you know, like not at all, even when fundraising, right. And, uh, getting the funding, like, no, it didn't, it didn't, that even didn't even feel like a relief or success or anything like that. I'm like, oh, 
I've got so much more work to do now. Like, and that was even that was so much work. And so I think, you know, again, I think the key thing about the key insights into open source is like, you know, the user who uses your software, the open source software is not going to be your buyer. That's something that people say a lot. But when you actually in reality experience that, you start to understand like, oh, yeah, that person sitting there is quite happy using that piece of software. That person is not going to pay for anything that I built, you know, and their company is not going to pay for anything that I built. And so, your, you know, your buyer and your market and everything else changes when you're trying to build a business. And uh, I can understand a lot of why people cannibalize their community at that point right? Because they're trying to build a real business. And so what do investors know? Enterprise software, you know, like what, what do you do? Go build your Salesforce, go build enterprise features, go sell to them, all that kind of stuff. And and so I'm trying to figure out like, you know, if I don't want to build that kind of company and I know that this platform has value, you know, who am I selling to? What am I selling them? Like, and you know, how do I do that? And it comes down to like the why, You know, and we've talked about this in the past, which is like, you know, why are you building this? Why does it matter? You know, like, what can I do with it? Like, why? Why why does it, you know, why does it matter? Why why do I need this? And I think when you start to, you know, talk about that, that's when things start to make sense. So for us, you know, once we understood our positioning in the market of saying like, hey, there's Netlify for the front end and there's Micro for the back end. You know, that land is so strong. Like people totally understood that. Like, oh yeah, you know, Netlify for the front end, I'm building the Jamstack over here. And wait, like if I'm supposed to consume APIs on the back end and that, you know, where is that? Where's that platform? That doesn't exist. How do I build these things? And we understand that that's our place. Now we got to just figure out the next phases, right? Like, which is, you know, are we, are we trying to serve the person who's trying to build the API? Are we trying to serve the person who wants to consume the API, you know? who's the user, all this kind of stuff. And that's, you know, that's a process of discovery, which is tough and yet at the same time rewarding, you know, because you're having to learn these things. It's a challenge. You know, this is a day-to-day thing where like you feel challenged by the work that you're doing. And it's not just about like writing more code, but actually like I'm trying to build a business. I'm trying to build something real. And I enjoy that as much as like I say, it's it's a hard time. I truly enjoy my opportunity to, you know, get to attempt to build a business. I don't know if I'll get there, but at the same time, like I'm trying. Well, I think you're doing, and I think what you're doing is pretty cool. And we talked earlier about, you know, the monopolies, I suppose is a word you said, you know, we mentioned some of the big names. They're all well known. Don't need to see them again. But this idea of a decentralized, democratized way, or not decentralized, but more like democratized way of offering these services, not so much inside of an organization, but having them hosted. I think your question, though, of who you're serving, I think, is actually both. So I think you can serve the people out there that want to adopt that vision, the why, as you mentioned, and host their own hello worlds, their own posts, their own comments, which are all features of micro. I think if they want to have that and see out this world where it's a democratized platform to build, a microservice and offer that as an API as the builder should be a thing. And then as a consumer, your job can be to offer up as a menu what you can build with these various things and say, you know what, you can come on this platform as a consumer 
not a builder, and consume these different services and use these different services to build out what you want to build. And in some cases, you can even look at the platforms that have succeeded and say, what's working there? What do we need to have here? Because whatever's out there that's, you know, privatized and black box behind a platform that is not, you know, open to, to everyone to sign up and use can be proving ground for what micro can produce or have produced. I think you're at a interesting and crucial point in your journey. I think a year from down the road or how many ever necessary more, we're going to see a unique perspective on builders leveraging micro to host and serve publicly accessible services that are not behind black boxes and consumers of that and a unique blend in between there that can really be fun. You're doing a better job of selling it than I ever could. No, I think I think it's uh, your why is exactly right. Pursuing the why is, is the hard part. If And you, you have to say if you're out there and you're on either side of that fence, if you want to live in that world, then that's how it's going to be. But if you want to live in this other world, and I think this other world is this idea of these of this democratized way to build services that are accessible to everyone, then you've got to buy into your why. For me, there's there's some key points in there, right? Yes, it is about the developer of the APIs, but it's also about the consumption of these APIs. You know, a lot of the people, a lot of times we talk about like this one side of like, hey, this developer wants to build something and we don't talk about like the why. Why do they want to build some that thing? Who are they building it for? What are they doing it with? And, you know, the key, some of the key questions that we came up with, what if we help that developer, you know, I, and then sell it? You know, what if their goal is to off, you know, if it's supposed to be a platform for APIs and you're trying to build the next Stripe or Twilio, what if we can help you, you know, charge for your API? So I think some of what we're attempting to do next in our business model, um, right, to just charge you for the platform itself. You know, what if we charge you for the consumption of the APIs? What if we enable you to take payments? What if we actually, what if we actually enable you? Right? What if we actually capture the value of what we're enabling and we help you make money or help you build your business? And I think that's when there's there's some sort of real, you know, win-win situation where like, just like, you know, um, Stripe is trying to, you know, help you take payments and they take a cut of it. You know, if you're trying to build an API, it's most likely that you're trying to sell that API or, or you know, it's trying to be consumed somewhere else. And we can probably help with that, you know, in the same way as like, you know, the app store, you know, as much as we talk about these monopolies, like you can create an app, you can put it in the app store, you can put it in the play store and you can charge for it. And they make it really simple for you to do that. And I think, you know, that just hasn't happened in software. We're like GitHub had this real opportunity. You know, if GitHub had just put a button on your repository so that you could charge for it, every developer would be making money, you know? Instead, what we have is like the tip jar, right? Sponsor, sponsor me, you know, sponsor my account. Well, I tell you, I tried to do the sponsor thing, right? I made very little money doing that. That doesn't work. But if you enable that person to actually build a real business, if you enable them to be a creator and make money, you know, that's what will work. If, if GitHub just enabled payments, they would, that would be a phenomenal thing. Like open source developers would be making millions as solo developers. 
we had a similar conversation recently with uh, with Ben Johnson. He's well known for you know you probably know Ben in the Go world. He's known for Bolt DB. That's inside of Kubernetes and his recent project Lightstream. And we had a conversation about that. And you know he's I don't know how to describe his struggle, but it's his struggle is how do I how can I provide value to the community that needs value provided? And one of the parts of the conversation was, well, obviously there's going to be some companies out there who view SQLite as a toy database or not quite as sturdy as, say, Postgres or similar because it's embedded and it has its flaws and whatever other reasons. And Lightstream solves that by super quickly saying Lightstream streams, real-time streams via the built-in API to SQLite externally to S3, a backup or a copy of the database. So it can be more of a sturdy database. And one of the conversations we had on there was being able to offer products, but really be support of, of some type to companies or to enterprises. And if, you know, instead Ben has to take, you know, that idea and kind of recreate it externally from GitHub. Meanwhile, Lightstream is hosted on GitHub. He's got discussions on GitHub. He's got issues on GitHub. He's got his source code obviously on GitHub. And if there's any sort of service that's built around it, it's GitHub is a launch point for which the CI or CD is, is launched upon. And so everything, the epicenter is GitHub, but you know, he can't offer products in quotes products to consumers via GitHub because it doesn't exist. I think, you know, you're keen on something like that. Like if they can enable a developer like Ben to be able to create a software like that and offer products slash support, in ways that make sense that are right then and there, gosh, I mean, his, he, he, it light up immediately for him to find a viable business model to build and create and not have to create some sort of crazy, I don't know, other, other site, other system, like it can be all in one. Plus you already got the credit card inside of GitHub. You already got procurement systems and teams that are already leveraging it up for other reasons. So it, it'd be a no brainer to turn on things like that. But I got to imagine somewhere along the way, someone behind GitHub has these big ideas and dreams and would love to do that ASAP yesterday. But for some reason, they're doling these things out slowly, potentially to ensure the platform makes sense for that and not just to turn it into this commercialized platform for payments and everything else. Because it it can get, if you just throw all that to the on button tomorrow, it can get to be a antiquated, nasty GitHub. Like it doesn't, it, it could be good, so much good, but then also like so much to support potentially. So maybe they're taking the slow road to some of these processes. I, I'm 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 with you there. You know, I, I think it's one of those things where you uh, you can kind of talk about one side of the the kind of equation and and not the other. And um, it would be great if that was a if that was an option that was available. At the same time, who knows what would happen if it did exist and all the different things that would occur. And I think, you know, when you do have a brand like GitHub, you can't just, you know, launch something as a test anymore. It has to really be a real thing. So I remember, I remember when they were, before they started doing sponsorships, um, they had, you know, some people reaching out to uh, some of us in the open source community, those of us who had like prominent projects, uh, to have these kinds of conversations like, hey, what are your struggles? What what do you need? You know, how could we help? You know, what do you think should exist? 
and you know sponsorship was one of those things that i mentioned like hey i'm having to use patreon i'm having to use separate things from a corporate sponsorship if you just made it any you know really simple for people to be able to sponsor that'd be a great way to get donations and that would work and they you know to their credit they eventually ended up rolling that out that's working for um some people um and that's you know phenomenal uh, and, you know, they rolled out discussions in the same way and, and various other kind of, you know, new features. And I wouldn't be surprised if they were working on it. You know, I just have this, you know, I have this feeling, um, you know, I'm always early to things and then I and I feel like I miss out. And so I feel like, you know, I was early to this solo open source thing. And I feel like in four or five years, you're going to be able to charge for your software on GitHub and people are going to make real money. And it's not going to be like, hey, please sponsor me. It's like, no, I'm producing a piece of value add software and you want my support or you want um, these additional features. And GitHub has enabled a way to make that seamless, to provide people purchasing power in, in such a simple way. And that will happen. And then there will be someone who is making a million dollars a year from you know being a solo open source creator? That that's something I truly believe will happen in the next decade. Yeah, I think it's possible. I mean, if you could do it on YouTube, why can't you do it on GitHub? Exactly, Ex- exactly. Why are developers not getting paid? You know, that's the real key question. Yeah, and you have to have a high-paying salary job, and there's a lot of scrutiny here in the U.S. too with taxes these days in terms of you know this is not a political show, but it, it just it's not often you you have somebody who has a high paying salary job. It's usually turned into something at a certain salary point. You you know you become an owner and you get paid differently. You know, high salary jobs are just and then now with changes in like different ways to consider high earners and taxes is uh, is challenging. I think especially when you have massive companies who pay zero in tax and they have way more millions than I have because I don't have millions. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it's like you know. It's it's a it's unfortunate. Yeah, we can we can talk about all those tax loopholes. That's uh, Jeez, that's true. That's a whole, a whole thing. Well, you know, it's been awesome this long conversation. We're forty four minutes past my anticipated end time, which means it's over two hours, which might be the first two hour show on Founders Talk. But what I love about this show and its format is that it lets us meander, and hopefully, we have an audience who enjoys the meandering through someone's story and their perspective and their thoughts. And we can sort of dovetail into certain things. And, you know, we talked about empathy and compassion for a while there. We talked about, you know, other things that aren't really on the purview or the the direct hit of what you're building with micro, but I think a democratized way to host microservices. And if that's attached as the back end to Netlify or Jamstack, then cool. If it's this future where anyone can build a microservice and an API and charge for it, a metered service, that's cool too. I think the road you're going down is, is, uh, I agree. You would have regretted it because somebody else would have built it. And I'm glad that someone like you, who's been in the trenches for as long as you have been building what you've been building are at the right place at the right time right now to be building it in a time. I think more people are looking towards this and potentially, you know, similar to what you said before, I think you said it about GitHub or was it Stripe? It was this economy. There's a, it's an economy enabled, you know, by what you're going to build. And I think that's that's something you should look at, not just simply the money you can make, but the money that you can enable others to make as well, potentially. And so 
Thanks for sharing your story. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that's like we we had to close off on? I know in an earlier call you mentioned your loathing of AWS or something you said about AWS or something like that. I don't know if you want to throw that in here or not, but I'd hate to leave the the floor without giving you a chance to share anything else that I may not have asked you or we may not have gotten to. So feel free. If you want to go there, go there. <laughs> well, I just... Uh, I'm glad I, I'm I'm glad you threw that in there, Adam. First, I want to say, look, I appreciate you having me on the show. It's been a blast, and uh, I'm not surprised we went over. This is has uh, has been a hell of a time, and yeah, like I think it just speaks to the fact that like we're not all one we're not one dimensional, right? We we all think about different things and cover broad ranges of topics, have all sorts of interests, and and that's just the same with me um, on AWS. Look, I, I think what AWS has done to open source. Um, is I don't think there are words really to describe it. I think it's, let's just say it's unsportsmanlike conduct. Uh, and I think something has to kind of happen there. So I'm not, I'm not really a, a big fan of this. I'm a fan of what they've done in terms of the business that they build and the types of technology that they build, but the, the behavior and um, open source I, I don't really like. And from my standpoint, what I'm trying to build is a next generation AWS that focuses on entirely on the developer as opposed to the infrastructure and the operator, right? I think that was built for a different era, for a different type of personality, now caters to a different type of entity. But I think developers who want to focus on building APIs, um, who don't want to manage infrastructure, should look to something like Micro and the platform that we're building M3O uh, for that kind of experience. So I think we are the anti-AWS, and uh, that's where I'll probably leave it. There you go. That's that's also part of your why, then. That is, yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, Basecamp slash 37 Signals earlier, and I think the way they built Basecamp, their direction for it was less about what they wanted to build and more about what they didn't want to build. And that's kind of what you mean by anti-AWS, is not so much what you're trying to build, what you're definitely not trying to build. I think that's a that's a good way of putting it. I mean, the only way I can really describe this is like I spent more than a decade managing infrastructure and platforms, and in that time, I just thought like, why why am I still doing this? Why do I keep doing this? Why am I touching infrastructure? Why do I have to keep doing all these things? Like, why has it not gone away yet? And nobody built that platform, and so that's the thing that I'm effectively trying to build, right? Which is platform that has no infrastructure i mean you could go so far as to call it serverless but you know it's maybe not that it's just it's just a platform that focuses on api development you know that does it in an opinionated way for the cloud and tries to be really really simple right you can do it you can you can sign up log in create a new api and call it all within 10 commands in the space of minutes, all through the CLI, you don't have to context switch. And that's the experience I wanted, you know, so that I built it for myself, right? And I removed everything else from it. So hopefully others feel like that offers them some value as well. Very cool. Thank you so much for your time. It's been awesome. Appreciate you sharing your wisdom, your journey, your thoughts, your perspectives. And uh, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of what you're doing and I appreciate you. I appreciate that, Adam. And uh, thank you very much for the time. I enjoyed the conversation. What's up, Adam here. Thank you so much for tuning in to Founders Talk. If you enjoyed this show, do me a favor. Share it on Twitter, share it on Insta, share it with a friend. Tell someone you love this show if you got value from it. As you know, we're backed by some awesome partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Check them out. We get tremendous value from their services, and you might as well. 
Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats. Breakmaster is our beats master in residence. Thanks again for tuning in. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next time.